Good morning. Please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 2. Our passage this morning, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, uh, has to be one of the best known stories in the entire Bible. Whether it's because you have read through the Bible many times, or you've heard this text covered in a Christmas sermon, or maybe you were in a Christmas play at some point in your life, maybe you've watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special, I feel confident in saying that uh, most of you sitting in this room have at least some knowledge of this story. And so one of the challenges in studying a text like this is that, uh, well, we can feel like we already know it and just breeze right by it. So we need to be on guard lest we let our familiarity with this passage then harden our hearts. God's word is infinitely deep and there's always more that we as people can take out of any given text that we might know God better, that we might love God better, that we might serve God better. So let's just start our time by asking that God would help us to that end and then we'll read the text We'll talk about what it means and how we can then apply it to our lives. Father, you are a holy God. We are a sinful people who have rebelled against our creator. And yet, Lord, you sent your beloved son into this world to become like one of us, uh, that he might save sinners like us. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world on that very first Christmas in Bethlehem to save sinners. So, Father, we pray that as we study this very familiar passage, that you would not let our familiarity with this story be a hindrance to our truly submitting ourselves under it, seeking to know you more through it. We ask that you would please show us your glory and show us our need for your gospel. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Back in November, we first started our series in Luke, kind of sketched out the preaching calendar for the weeks ahead, and wouldn't you know it, uh, perfect timing, right? We were going to do this passage about the birth of Jesus on December 26th, the day after Christmas. Like, wow, I could not have drawn it up any better, but it turns out I could have because, well, you know how it is, right? Gabriel's announcement uh, to Zechariah, well, that took us two weeks. Then Gabriel's announcement to Mary, that took us two weeks. 
uh, the Magnificat. Uh, that took us two weeks. And so here we are. Right? We're about to flip the calendar into February. And now we're finally getting to the birth of Jesus. But as I was thinking about it this week, I think that's going to be to our advantage this morning uh, for us to be able to study this text uh, separated by a month from all the, the festivities, the, the lights and the trees and the gifts and all the busyness and the distractions of the Christmas season. Just to be able to look at this passage as God's holy word, like apart from all of that, and perhaps we'll see and be convicted of and apply things from this passage that perhaps we've overlooked in Christmas's past. Just so we're all on the same page, let me do a quick recap here of chapter 1. Luke starts his gospel with the angel Gabriel appearing in the temple to a priest named Zechariah. God has not spoken to his people. Hundreds of years, 400 years of silence, no miracles, no angelic visits, anything like that. And the silence is broken by this angelic visit in which Gabriel tells Zechariah that Zechariah's barren wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a son. And that son, John, was going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. The scene shifts then to the small town of Nazareth, all the way up in Galilee. The same angel Gabriel appears to the Virgin Mary and tells her that she, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would also become pregnant with a child And that child would be Jesus, the Messiah. Mary then goes to visit Elizabeth. And as soon as they see each other, Elizabeth, John in Elizabeth's womb, and Mary, they all take turns rejoicing at what God is doing. And that's capped off by Mary's Magnificat, her song of praise to God. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary goes back to Nazareth. Elizabeth gave birth to John. Zechariah, because of his initial unbelief, when the angel Gabriel appeared to him, God made him unable to speak. For nine months, unable to speak. Uh, But as soon as a newborn baby is named John, in obedience to what the angel said, well, Zechariah's tongue is loosed, and immediately he begins to praise God with uh, this marvelous prophecy about the soon-to-be-born Jesus. And so we've had the announcement about John, we've had the announcement about Jesus, we've had the birth of John, and of course that brings us to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the birth of Jesus. I'll point out one more thing about Luke chapter 1 that I think we should take note of as we head into chapter 2. That's that it's filled with amazing miracles, supernatural events. You've got the angelic visit, right, to to Zechariah, and then Zechariah's made unable to speak because of his unbelief. And then you've got an angelic visit to Mary, and then Mary, right, this unmarried virgin, she becomes pregnant. She's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. You've got this divinely orchestrated conception so that the child to be born would be fully human and yet fully divine, the son of Mary and yet the son of God. Then Zechariah's muteness is miraculously removed. His tongue is loosed as soon as the child is named. Then you have Zechariah filled with the Holy Spirit. He's making prophetic declarations about Jesus, the horn of salvation. Luke chapter 1 is filled with amazing miracles and supernatural events. And so we come into chapter 2. And we see the little heading in our Bibles, the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And just, just imagine that you've never read the gospel before. Imagine that you've never heard this story before. Put yourself in the shoes of Theophilus. You're expecting the miraculous and the spectacular and the supernatural to continue here, right? Especially coming off of everything we just read in chapter 1. But you read through verses 1 through 7, and it's kind of plain. It's seemingly unremarkable. It's unspectacular. It's ordinary. What happens? A census is taken, and then two teenagers travel to Bethlehem, and then a woman gives birth to a baby and lays him in a manger. There's no mention of God. There's nothing about salvation. There's nothing about the gospel. These are just seemingly ordinary events. And then in the passage right after, right, which we'll cover next week, we go right back to the miraculous, the spectacular, the supernatural. We've got the angel of the Lord appearing to the shepherds. We've got a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. So what do we do with our passage? You've got the miraculous and the spectacular right before, and you've got the miraculous and the spectacular right after, and then right in the middle here, in comparison, our passage seems so ordinary. Here's one way to see how, uh, just how ordinary this passage is. You know what the dominant repeated theme in our verses is? It's not really the birth of Jesus. Right? That's literally one verse in, in verse 7. The dominant theme of this passage is a registration. Look carefully at your Bibles. Verse 1, that all the world should be registered. Verse 2, this was the first registration. Verse 3, and all went to be registered. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary. This passage is about a registration. It seems like an atheist could read this and appreciate this passage because God, salvation of the gospel, is entirely absent. But, here's my main point for today, to read this passage in that way completely misses the point. Like God and God's work, they're, they're all over this passage. You just have to look slightly, ever so slightly below the surface. And so what I want to do now is go through this familiar story, a story that we all know, this familiar story in detail. And I want to point out to you three ways in which we can clearly see God's hand moving in this text. So first, let's look at the providence of God in this passage. Point number one, the providence of God. Verse one, in those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. You remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. Well, once again, we see Luke is not telling us a fairy tale here, right? This is not something that happened uh, once upon a time in a far, far away land. This is a historical event marked by other historical events. In this case, uh, a census decree from Caesar Augustus. Theophilus, go, go look it up. Double check my references. This is a matter of public knowledge. So who's this Caesar Augustus guy? Scanning your faces to see who paid attention in high school history. His actual name was Gaius Octavius. 
He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar uh, takes a liking to Octavius, and so he adopts him as his own son and makes him his heir. Now, Julius Caesar is assassinated, and after that, there's a, a power vacuum, there, there's a struggle, there's a civil war, there's, there's all the destruction and economic turmoil that come with those things. But Octavius takes full control in 31 BC when he defeats his biggest rival, a, a guy named Mark Antony, uh, who, by the way, after his defeat uh, in the late 1990s, he would become a Grammy-winning songwriter. Interestingly enough. Uh, So Octavius consolidates power. 27 BC, he becomes the emperor of Rome. Uh, Rome had been a republic to that point, the Roman Republic, but that becomes the Roman Empire. Octavius is emperor. And then he takes the title Augustus, uh, meaning majestic or, or great or exalted. And so combine that with the name that he took from his adoptive father, Caesar, and you get Caesar Augustus. Now, as the emperor, he enacts numerous reforms. He expands the empire significantly. Uh, It basically goes all the way west to England, all the way east uh, to Persia, all the way south to, like, Egypt and northern Africa. It's massive. And so one of the things that you've got to do when you've got such a massive empire is you've got to figure out who your subjects are. And so Augustus orders a census that all the world should be registered. Now, Luke obviously doesn't mean that, you know, people from Mozambique and and Peru and Japan are getting counted here. It's just an expression to kind of uh, express the vastness of the empire. But people all over the empire are being registered. What's your name? Where do you live? What do you do? Uh, Who's in your family? And and so on. Now, that census, uh, in addition to figuring out exactly who his subjects were in the empire, was also used for two other reasons. One would be conscription, right, enlisting men into the military, Uh, though in the case of the Jewish people, they would have been exempt from that. But the other is taxation, right, rendering unto Caesar. Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, and Rome certainly wasn't built for free either, so they have to know who they can tax. And so Caesar orders a census. Now, verse 2, this guy, Quirinius, Okay, there are literally thousands of pages written about this one verse. You say, what's the big deal about this verse? Well, the issue is that uh, Quirinius was known to be governor of Syria from AD 6, right? Think of a timeline. You've got BC and you've got AD. Well, AD 6 is 10 years after BC 4, which is when Herod died. And we know that Jesus was born in the days of Herod. And so how can Jesus be born in the days of Herod, right, before 4 BC, and yet in the days of Quirinius after 6 AD? There's no uh, consensus solution here. Uh, Some have said, well, the census, it just took a long time. And so it began in the days of Herod uh, when Jesus was born, and its completion 10 years later is associated with Quirinius. You say, uh, something administered by the government met with delays and inefficiencies, that's impossible. But you get my point. That could be what's going on here. Uh, Others translate the verse as saying that the census happened before Quirinius became governor of Syria, which is a similar solution to solution one. Others say that Quirinius was governor of Syria twice. I think like 
President Grover Cleveland, right? Two separate terms. Uh, And maybe he was even governor in a different sense the first time, in the sense that he was governing or administering the census. This is one of those things that you read 10 different commentaries and you're going to get 11 different solutions. Uh, Regardless of which of those is true, we know that there was some form of a census ordered by Augustus that's associated with Quirinius, that most importantly for our understanding, Luke's original audience would have known about and it would have helped them to place when this happened. But is it just a historical marker? Well, no, because the census plays a vital role in our story. Verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Uh, We know from our Old Testaments that the Jewish people were big on ancestry and land allotments and all that. And so regardless of where they currently lived, the Jews went back to their ancestral homeland to get registered. Which means that Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because as we know from chapter 1, verse 27, he was of the house of David. And Bethlehem, as Luke reminds us, is where David was from. And so Joseph and Mary make the 90-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. By the way, you'll see in verse 5 that Mary is referred to as Joseph's betrothed. Uh, Just to clarify, they are legally married at that point. That's why she's traveling with him. But the marriage had not yet been consummated. And so they're not fully married in that sense. And so Luke refers to her here as his betrothed. Now, we don't know how far along she was in the pregnancy when they traveled. All we know is that because of the census... Because of this registration, she gives birth in Bethlehem. Verse 6, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time comes for her to give birth. And so, ladies and gentlemen, that is a remarkably unremarkable story. You got a little history, you got a little demography, you got a little geography, but there's certainly no theology there, right? Well, like, what's any of this got to do with God and his work and his purpose? But, point number one, you look at just a little bit below the surface and you see that this is a story about the providence of God. By providence, I'm referring to how the sovereign God of the universe orchestrates all things according to his plan. Uh, So where do we see that here in this story? We need to think about why it's important why it's significant that Mary gave birth to her son in the town of Bethlehem. Well, if you think about it, uh, it's significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem simply because that's where the Savior was born. Like, it would be significant if he was born in Hebron or Kiriath-Jerim or Cana. But it becomes more significant when you realize that he couldn't have been born in Hebron or Kiriath-Jerim or Cana. Because this is what the prophet Micah prophesied 700 years before Jesus was born. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem. That's a clear-as-day prophecy that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. How do we know that this is talking about Jesus? Well, you tell me how many rulers you know of whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient days. The NASB has from the days of eternity. The King James has from everlasting. That's Jesus. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And that's not just us, like many centuries later, uh, looking back and saying, well, uh, that's a prophecy about the Messiah. The Jews of Jesus' day knew that too. John 7, 42, the, the Jews mistakenly think that Jesus was born in Galilee. And they say, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? The scripture says, Micah says that the Christ comes from Bethlehem. And then when King Herod, remember he's searching for Jesus, he calls the chief priests, he calls the scribes, he inquires of them where the Christ was to be born. What do they say? Matthew chapter 2 verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and then they quote Micah 5 too. So now let's put this all together. God's providential hand becomes undeniable. God had promised, through the prophet Micah, some 700 years before Jesus was born, that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Well, the Messiah is conceived in pregnant Mary, but Mary lives in Nazareth, 90 miles away from Bethlehem. And so how is the Messiah going to be born in Bethlehem? Answer, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. As a result of this registration, remember this passage is about a registration. Well, as a result of this registration, look at verse 6, while they were there in the town of Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Is that just an amazing and lucky coincidence. No, not at all. It's providence. It's the sovereign God of the universe orchestrating all things according to his plan. God always keeps his word, right? We know that to be true. And the means that God uses to keep his word from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem was to have Caesar Augustus order the census. Now, some of you may be wondering, well, does Augustus know that God is doing this through him? No, he has no idea. It's not like God is forcing Augustus to do something that he doesn't want to do in order to bring about his plans. No, Augustus, Augustus himself, thought about doing a census. And Augustus himself wanted to do a census. And Augustus himself decreed the census. But God was behind all of it. Reminded of Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream, a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. The king's heart. Caesar Augustus. We see the same theme in the Old Testament. Consider as one example, King Cyrus, the Persian king whom God would use to bring his people back to the promised land. Look at what God says about Cyrus in Isaiah 45. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, Cyrus. I name you, as he names him earlier in that chapter, though you do not know me, 
I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Cyrus, you've got no idea who I am, but I'm going to use you and your decree for my glory. Well, Augustus, you have no idea who I am, but I'm going to use you and your decree for my purposes. But you think about it. God is sovereign over all things. All things. Surely, uh, there were many other ways that he could have gotten Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. I don't know, like a family reunion. A really sick relative that they had to visit. A birthday party. Or just making them move their years beforehand. Whatever it might be. But God, in his infinite wisdom chooses to use literally the most powerful man in the whole known world as his unwitting tool. And so he demonstrates once again that uh, might and power and influence as human society might see it, and these things that we value and we exalt and we fear, well, they mean absolutely nothing to the sovereign God of the universe. Right? Kings are but pawns in his hand. If you were here a few weeks ago, you'll remember that's exactly what Mary's Magnificat was about. And so in a passage that doesn't mention God once, in which God, at least on a surface reading, appears entirely absent, a a passage about, of all things, a registration, we see God's sovereign fingerprints of providence all over the place. Point number one, the providence of God. I think there's a few practical takeaways for us here. The first is that there are uh, no accidents, uh, no lucky coincidences, no unfortunate mistakes, any of that, when it comes to God and his sovereign plans. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Like every single aspect of the birth of Jesus, timing, geography, surrounding events, all of that was according to God's perfect plan. And that's true not just of the major events in redemptive history, that's true of every single detail of your life. And so as Jesus would teach us later in the book, that's why we ought not to be anxious. That's why we ought to always trust an all-wise and perfectly sovereign God. The application to your life, I hope, is clear. Are you inclined to trust God's timing in your life? But God, why don't I have this yet? Do you trust that God has you in Bethlehem because you're supposed to be in Bethlehem? Do you trust that God uses the Caesar Augustuses and their registrations, regardless of how inconvenient and unpleasant they might seem to you, to fulfill his purpose in your life? A second, this passage, viewed properly through the lens of God's sovereignty, it's also a reminder to us that the most powerful and influential people in the world 
the Caesar Augustuses of history, they're but pawns in the hand of God. It's like when Pilate says to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus corrects him. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Do you not know that I have the power to make everyone go to their homeland in order to be registered? Not quite, Caesar Augustus. You would have no authority at all unless it had been given to you from above. And so when the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and his anointed, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and we who trust him, well, we can rest in that, can we not? Point number one, the providence of God. Second, I want you to see the condescension of God from this story. Point number two is the condescension of God. Verse seven, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. If you yourself have ever been part of a Christmas play, or your children have been involved in one, then you will know that there are always two villains in every Christmas play. King Herod, of course, he's like the the arch-villain, he's the super-villain. And then there is the equally despised innkeeper. You know, he's the mean, rude, heartless, sinister innkeeper. Joseph and Mary come to him for a room, and uh, he doesn't care if she's 10 months pregnant. There is no room for you at this inn. Poor guy gets such a bad rap. So universally disliked. Here's the thing. He probably never existed. A small town like Bethlehem, it's not on any of the major trade routes. It probably didn't have a big commercial inn. If that's what Luke meant to say here, he probably would have used the same Greek word that appears later in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that parable where the innkeeper, like the real innkeeper, uh, he takes the guy to an inn to care for his wounds? That's a different word than the one we see here because a small town like Bethlehem probably wouldn't have had one of those. What they probably did have was like an open public area with a covered roof of some sort that kind of caravans that were passing by could stay at for a night and there would, of course, be no innkeeper. What they would have is a, an adjacent area for the animals to stay. And so uh, don't picture like, well, there's no room at the Hilton, so I've got to go to the countryside to find a barn to uh, give birth in. It's, it's more like there's a bunch of caravans already here, uh, maybe in town for the census, And so we're just going to have to make do with this adjacent area that's uh, more typically reserved for the animals. So Mary gives birth there, and she lays the newborn Jesus in a manger, a a feeding trough for animals. Alternatively, there's another possibility here. Uh, The word for inn can actually be translated uh, guest room, uh, as in a guest room of a house. Uh, For example, Jesus and his disciples, they eat the Lord's Supper in a guest room. Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? That's the same word as in Luke 2.7. So a second possibility is that 
Joseph and Mary, they went to stay with, I don't know, relatives or friends or whoever. But all the guest rooms that were typically upstairs in the house, well, they were all already occupied. And so Mary and Joseph stay in the common room, which was on the lower level, adjacent to where the animals were typically kept. We need to be careful here. It's possible to get so bogged down in, uh, in these details. We're trying to figure out the kind of architecture that Jesus was born in. Or maybe it was even a cave where uh, the animals were housed. Who knows? Uh, we can miss the point entirely. Because the point isn't so much like, well, it's this kind of inn versus that kind of inn. This kind of major versus that kind of manger. The point is, this isn't how any mother envisions giving birth to her first child. Like no expectant mom on their baby registry is asking for a manger to put their child in. And that point is further magnified by the fact that this is no ordinary baby. For a moment, just forget everything that you know about who this baby is going to become in the next 23 chapters of the book. Just think back to what we've already been told about him in Luke chapter 1. Luke one thirty-five. the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This is not an ordinary baby boy. This is the Son of God. Carrying that understanding forward from chapter 1 makes this seemingly ordinary events of our passage that much more extraordinary. These are the lowly conditions under which the Son of God, very God of very God, entered into his creation. Like just the idea of the incarnation, just the idea that God would take on human flesh, That itself is a mind-blowing picture of humility, of condescension. Jesus, who has existed forever, remember Micah 5, 2, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days? Well, he adds to himself humanity. He voluntarily subjects himself to all of the limitations of humanity. Tiredness, hunger, a thirst, temptation. He remains fully God. He is fully God, but he chooses to lay aside the privileges and the prerogatives of deity, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped. But as if that wasn't enough condescension, if that wasn't enough lowering himself in humility, he takes on flesh not as a king or a prince, or even a noble, he takes on flesh as a carpenter's son. He comes not as a fully grown man, strong and able. He comes as a newborn babe, wrapped in swaddling cloths. He's born not in a palace for royalty. He's born in a shelter for animals. And he's not placed in a comfortable cradle. He's placed in a feeding trough. I mean, we've just seen, right? Point number one, the providence of God. That God works through an empire-wide census to providentially direct the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. 
And so it's not like the God who brought Mary and Joseph all the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem that he couldn't have found them a room somewhere in the town. But that's the condescension of God that Jesus would, according to the eternal plan of the Trinity, not only lower himself by taking on human flesh, but be born in, of all places, a shelter for animals. Why lies he in such mean estate? Point number two, the condescension of God. The humility of the incarnation and the humility of the life of Christ it's an idea that's all over the New Testament. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Philippians chapter 2, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, and lo, he abhors not the manger either. Point number two, the condescension of God. Which brings us now to point number three, the gospel of God. Because here's the thing. If we leave point number two, the condescension of God, and we just say, well... Look at how Jesus lowered himself. Look at where he was born. Look at where he was laid to sleep. What humility, what what condescension. Well, that's true, but that's not the full story. Because according to the gospel of God, point number three, being laid in a manger was never to be the final step in his voluntary self-lowering, in his condescension. Now that final step would be his death on a cross for sinners like me and you. Remember those three verses I read to you earlier about the humility of Christ? I only read part of each passage. Let me read you the the verses in full now, and you'll see how each of them points to something greater, much greater than just the humble circumstances of his life, of his birth. Each of them points to what he came to accomplish in his death. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's referring to our salvation. Philippians 2, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And here we go. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, the humility of Christ can never be separated from the death of Christ because it's through the death of Christ that the humility of Christ shines brightest. And so we can't look at Bethlehem and the animal shelter and the the swaddling cloths and the manger without looking at what all of that was pointing to, where all of that was ultimately going to lead to, which is the death of Jesus. Jesus. 
Because not only does Christ, the second person of the Trinity, take on human flesh, and not only is he born under the humblest of circumstances, but this same Jesus would grow up and he would allow men that he himself created to nail him to the cross and humiliate him in his death. Why? So that those who trust in him can be forgiven of our sins. And in exchange, we can receive his perfect, righteous record. So that he could, on the cross, in his death, suffer the wrath of God that we deserve. So that sinners like you and like me who deserve an eternity in hell because of our sins against the holy God, and said we can have eternal life with him forever in heaven. Friends, the condescension of God points us to the gospel of God. The manger points us to the cross. Bethlehem points us to Calvary. Christmas points us to Good Friday. And Luke chapter 2 points us to Luke chapter 23. Speaking of Luke chapter 23, look one more time at Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So at the very beginning of his life, Jesus was wrapped and Jesus was laid down. Those are passive verbs. Someone is doing that to him Mary is doing those things to him because in his humility, he's taken on the weakness of a baby. And so he is wrapped and he is laid down. Well, so it would be at the end of his life. Because in his humility, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, crucified in weakness. And so he is again, at the end of his life, wrapped and laid down. Luke 23, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. As weak and as powerless as he appeared as a newborn baby, how much more weak and powerless does he appear as one who dies on a cross? But of course, the story doesn't end at the cross. The story doesn't end at Calvary. The story doesn't end on Good Friday. The story doesn't end in Luke chapter 23. Because three days later, Luke chapter 24, the tomb would be empty. And that linen shroud in which he was wrapped was just lying there. Because death could not hold him. Death is swallowed up in victory because Jesus rose again from the dead. The humble birth of Jesus, the servant life of Jesus, they point to the horrific death of Jesus, all of which points to his glorious resurrection. So that we, his people, will forever say with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. On the surface, it seems so ordinary. But you look right below the surface, and you undeniably see the hand of God providentially orchestrating all things. And you so clearly see the gospel of God. Not only in Christ's humble incarnation, but ultimately the death on the cross, the victorious resurrection to which all of that points. This, this is Christ the King. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise for the incarnation that your son took on human flesh while retaining every aspect of his deity that he would become like one of us that he might die in the place of sinners like us. And Father, that through his life and his death and his victorious resurrection, we who are your children have salvation, have the forgiveness of sins, have eternal life with you. Father, we pray for those in this room who do not know you. Lord, we pray that today would be the day of salvation, that today would be the day that they see Jesus Christ not just as the baby born in Bethlehem, but as the Savior of the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.